Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight we have an all-star cast of internet filmmakers. Uh, we have Peter Joseph of Zeitgeist, Ben Stewart of Chimatica and Esoteric Agenda, and Roger Stahl of Mil- Militainment Incorporated. Um, it's great to have all of you here. I know Peter will be calling in via the switchboard. Um, ben, you said somebody had a technical question. Go ahead and spit that out while I'm waiting for Peter. Uh, well, he was just asking. Um, he he needs he's on the page and needs to know if he needs to start up an account or will it just start automatically? But I'm assuming he might know that by yeah, now. Yeah, it'll it'll start automatically. All right, cool. Um, but anyway, um, let me go ahead and peruse the switchboard here real quick and uh, see if uh, our third guest is ready to join us. Yep, that would be him. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Hey, hey, Neil. How's it going? Excellent, actually. Yeah, we've got a serious all-star panel here tonight. Um, the focus of tonight's show is to have the three of you guys share your experiences with independent Internet-based filmmaking, uh, talk about your future uh, works and uh, what you basically have in line you know, from here, and also to talk a little bit about what you've already been doing. So I always start everybody off first off with uh, just introductions. I'll start with you, Roger. Um, Roger, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Thanks, Neil. Um, I'm Roger Stahl. I'm, I guess, in my capacity tonight. Um, I'm an uh, associate professor of communication studies at the University of Georgia, and um, uh, I study um, rhetoric and persuasion, public relations, propaganda, uh, but specifically uh, wartime propaganda and even more specific than that, um, the relationship between the culture industries or commercial entertainment industries, popular culture, and war, and how those two spheres have interacted and kind of joined forces in recent years, recent decades. And uh, in 2007, I, as you mentioned, I made a, a film that was about two hours long, started as a classroom video uh, called Militainment, Inc., that explored in a number of different uh, focuses uh, this, this relationship and how it has changed over the years. All right, yeah, actually you have a you have a book version of that too, don't you? Yeah, it's a little bit more academic in nature and kind of goes into a lot of media theory and uh social theory, political theory and uh tries to kind of um take that um military entertainment relationship and contextualize it and put it in the center of a bigger picture. Right. Well, um, you are also working on a new film that should be out very soon. What was the name of that again? Yeah, it's called, uh, it's coming out probably by the end of this month. It's called Returning Fire, Interventions into Video Game Culture. And yeah. it's uh, a set of three vignettes, uh, different artists slash activists uh, who have sort of made it their business to go into various war-themed video games, the kind of games that model themselves off of what we see on television um, that's coming over, you know, commercial network news. Um, Going into those sorts of games like Call of Duty and Medal of Honor and America's Army and conducting little experiments, little culture jamming sessions, um, and getting quite a bit of exposure uh, for some of the controversial things they've been doing. Um, You know, I could go into 
you know, some of the projects themselves. But um, the film just kind of sets those up, curates them, and and tells the story of each of these uh, interventions in into wargaming culture and how they've sort of sparked public debate and um, exposed the contradictions involved in in this relationship. Yeah, I got to say, I got to see some of it. You were you were nice enough to let me have a you know a little bit of an advance you know look at some of it, and I have to tell you know the listeners this this is looking up to be a very powerful video game based movie. Really, I mean to teach people about it, you don't really think about what it is that you're desensitized to. You know, I still play war games on occasion, but it's 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 just not the same anymore that I've really thought about what it is that they're doing, that it's essentially just kind of a, just as you said in Militainment, it's an effort to try to, you know, desensitize people to this and the recruiting tool like that America's Army thing that you kind of put an expose on, you know, was after I looked at it again, it was like, wow, you're totally right. This is completely like a recruiting tool for the military. Um, and... Uh, so, that being said, I'm going to move on to Ben. Mr. Stewart, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Well, um, yeah, my name is uh, Ben Stewart, and I've done two films so far. Uh, and I launched, um, just this past year, The Hanged Man Project. And really, um, what I could say that uh, I kind of specialize in, there's only one thing that I would call myself uh, an expert on, and that's myself and my experiences so I figured the best way that I could even put that to the public um, is through the language of art. So I've really just been working on my art lately through the band and through the documentaries and finding a way basically to inspire people uh, through through my art or through anybody else's art who wants to involve themselves with the Hangman Project to inspire people to use their own um, inner faculties to really create the life that they want to live for themselves and in a turn, on a societal level, on a cultural level, to um, somehow turn the cultural canon from one of a, uh, a fear-based, lack-based, um, very low, limited, you know, vision of the, of the world as it is right now, and kind of inspire people to take a new approach and a new view of the world. And that's why I call the the Hanged Man Project after the the card, the tarot card, the Hanged Man. Uh, because in in the symbolism there, the hang, the hanged man is upside down, viewing its world, viewing his world completely opposite as to how he used to in the past, and all of the val- all the coins in his pocket has fallen out of the ground because he's hanging upside down, and that represents allowing the value that we place on looking at the world as either good, bad, disgusting, ugly, beautiful, any all of that value, allowing that to fall away for a second and just look at the world the way it actually is, rather than the way that we're being told it is. So that's really what I've been dedicating myself to is, A, my own art, and B, the Hanged Man Project, which I'm using as some form of a conduit to bring everybody's vision for the future into play without having to neglect any vision. So, I mean, over the past six months, that's what the Hanged Man Project has done. But above and beyond that, I still do the documentaries, I still do my music, and that's my own personal form of art, and that's just what I love to do. So that's what I'm going to keep doing. You also uh, you you play in a band, right? What was the name of your band again? Uh, the band name is Hyrosonic, and that's uh, like hieroglyphics. Hyrosonic, it's um, H I E R O S O N I C, and it uh, kind of takes on a dual um, meaning when it comes to my other film, Chimatica, because Hyrosonic just stands for sacred or harmonious sound or noise or vibration, and Chimatica just stands for 
vibration and matter and how the interplay between vibration and matter and where consciousness comes into play with all of that. So it's really in in the best artistic way that I could, you know, not really understanding video editing, not really understanding how to put documentaries and things like that together. That was the best artistic representation that I could of how I've experienced um, freedom and, and realizing that freedom isn't something that's bestowed upon us by a leader or bestowed upon us by anything other than us accepting the fact that freedom happens in every moment. So that's kind of what, through my art, in some way, shape, or form, if if I it could inspire one person to feel that, that's really, you know, kind of what the goal is right now. All right. Well, it's it's interesting, actually, because we have another musician on the line. Um, Mr. Joseph, obviously, everybody, you know, at least most of the Zeitgeist people know who you are, obviously. Um, but uh, since I'm sure we probably have, uh, you know, listeners who came to also hear about Ben and Roger, you know, introduce yourself to the audience and, and tell them about what, you know, what got you started in Zeitgeist. Uh, sure. Uh, Peter Joseph, I was uh, trained as a classical musician. I dropped out of school second year, had to find a job to make money, broke in debt, got into advertising of all things, uh, learned video editing, and was lucky to do some musical composition along the way. But during the scope of my, my tenure in the advertising field, which was very painful, I uh, decided to do a project called Zeitgeist, uh, singular, which I eventually showed in Lower Manhattan, which was a musical project where I performed a large, uh, large percussion event with two big screens, and I took a bunch of footage illegally from numerous other, other videos <laughs> and compiled this uh, haphazard free work that was shown as essentially a personal catharsis. Once that was over, I, uh, I didn't think much of it, and it was... It was over. It was done. I, you know, there was never. It was during the age where the beginning of Google, Google Video, where it was the first time that anyone, excuse me, it was the first period where people were putting videos online. So I knew I had this video component that wasn't musically complete. So I kind of threw some music together that couldn't really be shown live, and I threw it up on Google. And out of nowhere, I think I posted it to some blog. Uh, chain reaction occurred, and suddenly Zeitgeist became Zeitgeist the movie. And then uh, the hate mail started pouring in, and the legal threats started pouring in. So I had to hide my last name, and then I originally went by Peter J. Uh, that was the very early on. I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do here? I got to get out of here. I'm going to be sued <laughs> into oblivion because all these people think I'm I'm, I'm making a million dollars off of this internet thing. So luckily, everyone that was participating in the film post, you know, after the fact. Uh, they were most of them were nice. Some of them were threatening. Many of them I had to pay a great deal of money to, but overall it was fine. And suddenly, like I said, the movie was born. And then, of course, as I've said, uh, which of course the audience would know, everyone asked me after like I said, the movie came out, what do we do about these things? And you know, what, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> so I was lucky to be contacted by a man named William Gazeki, who introduced me to Jacques Fresco, and I went and visited them, and I said, wow, there's some really important information here. And uh, Zeitgeist Addendum was born, and the entire second half of Zeitgeist Addendum was really the bridge uh, between essentially you know, the halfway point between all three films, where it moves from John Perkins into part three, which talks about Jacques Fresco and the Venus Project as the introduction, as a solution, as a ground-up-based finding root causes solution. And then, of course, I carried that over into Zeitgeist moving forward with a much larger, uh, much larger concept to it, you know, very long film, many different angles. Um, 
And uh, that's how the Zeitgeist film series was born. Of course, after the Zeitgeist, excuse me, after the Zeitgeist addendum was there, uh, the movement was started as a social experiment, if you will. I just wanted to see if anyone would even attempt to join a movement that would seek such a grandiose global change. And uh, amazingly enough, I was, um, I was astounded at how many people actually really did kind of get it. And uh, well, now we're still in that phase of getting other people to get it. And in the end, I don't really consider myself a filmmaker. I don't consider myself a musician. I just... I just see a really serious social collapse and some serious problems ahead. And I see a public that's uh, completely deranged, and they have been told these things, told things that really have no foundation. There's this mythological basis to the way people look at the world. Predominantly, the majority of the population is, as I've said before, uh, I hate to use the phrase, but they're mentally ill. There's a mental illness that permeates the entire social structure through all religious social constructs, political constructs, and no one thinks about the sort of life ground attributes and what's actually happening with this slow train wreck. So now I've dedicated my life to try and figure out how to use art or any type of medium, literature, even music in certain contexts, um, to try and get this sort of awareness out there that we have to change the system before the system uh, basically collapses on top of us. So that's where I am today. Well, um, I want to once again thank everybody for being on tonight. Uh, this show, actually, ironically, you know, people did ask to get you know um, uh, the, some of you together on the same show, and I think that one of the major reasons that this motivated me was that internet filmmaking is really taking off. I think that it's something that the filmmaking industry has needed for a long time. I think the same thing is true of music. The Creative Commons license is really uh, breaking the the stranglehold or the bottleneck that the music you know, companies had on everything. And um, actually, uh, one of the first questions that popped up in the chat room was for Peter. Uh, is is it possible, have you ever put out a CD or anything that anybody could listen to from your earlier music? Uh, for me, well, most of, it is, um, most of it is actually in the archives. I don't actually want to resurrect it. Uh, because of the tensions that have emerged uh, surrounding myself and bringing other people that are in other people that I used to relate to, because there's a whole group of, of you know, aggravators that, that send me letters, that, that drop phone calls, that have gotten into a full harassment squad. So if I bring in any new people, they're open for more uh, more abuse or at least manipulation, just like my family and things like that. All the things I've attempted to avoid. Uh, when I you know, don't talk about my last name and to kind of protect my family and my friends. So I actually do have quite a large archive of material, many, 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 many hours of work um, as a professional musician and lots of productions, but I'm not really willing to make any of that public. That's fine. Um, yeah, actually, we, we saw that little leaked version on YouTube that you put on your, your Facebook that somebody had actually videotaped a little bit of that musical presentation. It looked like it would have been really interesting. Uh, I wish we, you know, I wish at some point anyway we could have had like a whole thing of it. It would have been very, you know, very good to hear you like you playing your own instruments and such was sure. very good. Um, it was unfortunate that none of that actually surfaced. Uh, you know, it just never made it into a recording. That was a very big shock that someone had it on a camera phone back then. Yeah. Well, um, this question is going to be for all three of you, um, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Roger, uh, to answer it first. But uh, people are asking, um, how have these films and doing them impacted your lives? I guess you know you would kind of look at it from a perspective of my life before I made Militainment and got involved in all this, and my life afterwards. Well, there's just no other medium that can reach so many people right now so quickly and with such an emotional and sometimes intellectual impact. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of 
a lot of the kind of artistic projects that people are involved in uh, are in some ways kind of esoteric and meant for very small audiences. Uh, but it seems like documentary has emerged as a form and even kind of like creative nonfiction films uh, as a form that um, can take very complex ideas and then present them in a more digestible way or a way that is, uh, oh, I, I suppose kind of akin to uh, sort of a, a short form kind of advertisement for um, big ideas. Um, a way to sort of stick your toes into a pool and test out the waters. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a reason right now why documentary as a form is, is really exploding, and part of it is that um, the kind of authorship tools are now being made available to all kinds of people who had ideas and uh, projects but could never quite get the funding for those. And... Um, and, you know, while there is kind of a chilling effect with regard to copyright and trademark, um, there's also uh, kind of a, a movement in the other direction, too, where um, there's so much activity, so much illegal uh, appropriation of copyrighted material um, that the powers that be can't keep up with it. They can't write enough ce uh, uh, cease and desist letters uh, to stop kind of the flood. So in a certain way, um, you know, the field is opening up for the kind of cultural criticism that couldn't be done even, you know, 10 years ago. So, you know, there are a number of other factors beyond these things, but um, certainly when you ask the question, how has sort of independent or Internet filmmaking changed my life? For me, as, um, you know, uh, an academic, it's sort of like opened up my ideas to a, 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 a a huge classroom audience and also uh, an even bigger audience beyond the classroom, um, you know, where I can, you know, even uh, not doing a lot of like media appearances, um, I can expose my ideas in, in a way that, you know, um, I suppose I don't like to use this word, uh, but in, in, in the style of sort of like a public intellectual, um, which I don't consider myself to be quite, <laughs> I have kind of a disdain for that term. Um, but uh, um, certainly, you know, a lot of my ideas uh, are uh, meant for an academic audience, and this has opened them up to a non-academic audience in a big way. Yeah, actually, um, a film like yours, and I, I generally kind of think the same thing of, like, Robert Greenwald's film about the Fox News and uh, Orwell Rolls in His Grave. I don't think films like that would have even really gotten distributed if it wasn't for the Internet, at least nowhere near as widely Um Anything that was critical of the uh, the media um, in times before, I, I've never seen anything that ever led you to question the media's validity uh, before the internet. Um, I think that that's a really powerful point there. I mean, would you agree? Well, out, Outfox Greenwald's film out, Outfox was really a test case in that kind of thing um, because uh, Fox News, of course, um, just you know, sick their entire legal department on Greenwald and. Uh, at a certain point, he had to make a decision whether he was going to pursue this and, and put himself at major financial and legal risk. And uh, he pushed through. And the you know the thing was that the and I I believe I'm getting the story straight. Um, Fox News backed off because um, they um, you know were risking kind of exposure as well, right? That a, a news story would get out that um, Fox doesn't want you to see this film. 
Um, it's kind of a similar thing that happened uh, to one of the, sort of the big name um, critical academic classroom filmmakers. Suit Jolly made this uh, film uh, back in the, I believe it was the early 90s, called uh, Dream Worlds that was sort of went through uh, sexual uh, gender depictions in, in rock music videos. And MTV was going to sue him for unlawfully using copyrighted material. And so he just basically turned that back on them, released a, a press release that said, MTV is trying to sue me because of the classroom video. And MTV backed off and since then hasn't touched his uh, Media Education Foundation, which continues to use um, copyrighted material to a large degree, um, claiming fair use, but still, um, they don't seem to be as exposed to the same kinds of legal risks as other um, filmmakers because they, they took steps early on to take advantage of um, corporate powers, fear of being exposed as uh, a kind of copyright harasser. <laughs> right. Yeah, fair use has really enabled a lot of people to be able to make some of their films, but yeah, I, I just... But as you said, you know, it's it is kind of dangerous to mess with the media, and I'm I'm really glad that you did your film because, uh, in particular, I I really didn't realize just the kind of impact that stuff was having on me. And then we really talked about it a lot during our interview. Speaking of which, for those of you who are listening, if you're interested in hearing my interview with Robert Greenwald, a filmmaker of probably well at least a half dozen films that you've likely watched, including Outfoxed, uh, Walmart, High Cost, Low Prices. Um, really good documentaries. You can go to vradio.org, v-radio.org, and I have that interview there. Um, in addition to my interviews, actually, with all in, you know, all three of these filmmakers on tonight individually. Um, all right, well, Ben, it's going to be the same question for you. Uh, do you have like a kind of a how do these did making these films impact your life? And do you remember what your life was like was before <laughs> Esoteric Agenda, and and how much it changed afterwards? Yeah, well, um, absolutely. My life before, really, um, on the surface, it wouldn't have looked much different. But um, I think I, I just uh, simply went through, like, I mean, I, I should have gone through it earlier in life, you know, maybe, but it was it was the right time to really turn into an adult. Um, the more that I actually took an active look at the world, an active look at my the impact of my actions and the impact of everyone's actions, um, I simply learned to appreciate the, the way that the documentary specifically changed me is I simply learned to appreciate that uh, the documentaries are a beautiful mix of art and intellectualism. And I think that if you have an idea uh, to, say, change the world or to change yourself, any idea that you want, um, and, and you'd like to share that with the world, then the first thing to consider is how to communicate that with people. What language are you going to use? And I've found that being relatable to people is a very primary key um, through through art or through anything, art or intellectualism. And I find that people relate to art and emotional language just as much, if not more, than intellectualism. Intellectualism definitely gets the point across very quickly, but art gets the point across with a distinct flavor and a signature to it that helps the individual understand it because you link that with with an experience and a feeling in your life. So it's not just an intellectual idea of something. So I found that mixing the two uh, with documentaries within a documentary works perfectly, which is why I love the uh, specifically the internet documentary uh, craze that's going on now. It's 
free work that you put up, you allow anyone to just share in your artwork and share in your vision. And if they agree, you'll attract people that, that want to help you with that vision and want to help build that vision of the future or whatever it is that you're trying to build. But I think the reason why I love the documentary specifically, um, obviously I'm always going to, um, my, my love is music. That's always what I've done. But the documentaries are a great way for me to get a, get across my own personal experiences and my, my own viewpoint from the standpoint of me as an individual and put it into an artistic platform as a language that other people can, can consider at least. So in, instead of saying, this is what I know, this is what's going on in the world, this is what we have to do, instead of pointing that finger and saying, this is you know, what we have to work on, I try to instead come from a different angle and inspire people to make that decision for themselves which is really the basis of what all of my work gets down to, is allowing for people to be, uh, inspiring people to become sovereign, to become uh, active thinkers, to become artistic, to become lovers. Um, and if I can inspire that, again, that's what the Hangman Project is really working towards. So the documentaries, they changed my life because it brought to me the Hangman Project. And, I, and the reason why I don't consider the Hangman Project to be mine is because it's something that I, uh, without... Um, Without great uh, artists and documentaries that have come before me, I wouldn't have had the notion to do something like the Hangman Project. So, um, yes, the documentaries changed my life very profoundly, and that's really one of the only reasons, not that I wouldn't have gotten here in some way, shape, or form, but that's one of the primary movers and initiators to where I am today. Excellent, Ben. Um, well, Peter, same question. Can you remember your life before Zeitgeist and, and what it's like now? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> well, let's see. I'm trying to think of a pleasant way to put this. <laughs> um, before before all this occurred, I was in the upper 10% of income in the United States in this sort of uh, advertising world. I had no no financial problems by that point, any real effect. I mean, it was, it was a lot of debt I was still inside of, but uh, one thing that people tend to forget you know, when they hear me talk about the things that I talk about is they assume that I come from a disposition that was of some depravity, I've actually given up a great deal here, and, and uh, you know, I, again, I hate to, I want to be kind of blunt, but the past two years have been by far the most miserable of my life, but simultaneously have also been enlightening in the sense that I begin to see these sort of changes in myself and changes in the public. I've met a lot of great people. I've been exposed to high levels of tension and both, and both, you know, enlightenment, if you will, not to be redundant, but. Overall, uh, my disposition is very simple. I can't sit idly by while what is occurring in the world today, knowing what I know, and not do something about it. So I can't really say that, uh, I wish I had a more romantic way to describe it, but ultimately I'm certainly not going back. But, um, you know, ignorance is bliss, you know. <laughs> and uh, I lived in the, ex I wasn't as ignorant as most, but I, I still had my, I still fared well. I learned the monetary game early on. It was never a problem for me. I could be the perfect con artist if I had to, but then my conscience seeped in, and my artistic interests and my influences coming from the worlds of George Carlin, coming from the worlds of Bill Hicks, and all these sort of people, and all the books I used to read about what it meant to be a human being, and Martin Luther King, which is traumatically just life-blowing when I began to research his work. I mean, you hear about someone like that, and you know, it's always in a kind of a facade, but when you actually get deep into what that individual represented, uh, it, there's so many platforms of analysis that people need to think about. So I, there's no turning back. But uh, overall, my, I live, as you, as you very well know, Neil, I live uh, probably in a state of constant tension, 
And yeah. uh, while while I you know while it's again there's points of pleasure and again I'm really satisfied to see the growth of the movement. I'm also equally as disappointed to see the kind of counterculture that goes against what we're talking about. You know, God forbid the world should learn to work together. Ooh, imagine that. That's got to be the most evil thing on the planet. And unfortunately, there's a huge counter uh, move against what we're doing, and that that that's disheartening and despairing. But that is the nature of things, and I I'm not. You know, the change that's going to occur is going to occur one way or another. And the real question is how fluid is it going to be when we make that move? So let me, I'm jumping around here. I hate to be dark about it, but uh, overall, um, I've got some soul searching to do to try to find balance in my life. I haven't practiced a musical instrument in a serious way for a good year and a half. So everything I used to enjoy has been slowly pushed out of the way. You know, forget relationships, forget any kind of social life, forget. You know, forget any kind of basic comfort that most of us have been indoctrinated into, and then I wake up every day in this sort of weird, nervous, distracted life where I have to constantly circle around and figure out what the hell I'm doing next, uh, and it's always one thing after another. So, But on the positive side, you know, the Internet and the phenomenon and everything about it is truly wonderful. We're seeing a global <laughs> awakening. We're seeing, we're seeing people begin to express themselves in ways they never could before. And imagine, you know, going back 150 years and you have people that their entire news, all the information they ever got about what happened in the world was a newspaper thrown at your front door. Now we have this, we have the reverse. We have this, this just huge sea of information. You have to figure out what to believe, what to not believe. And uh, even though that's, uh, <laughs> that's complex, it's still very, very positive. The Internet is the new civil commons, and the medium of uh, video is a very, very powerful one, which I think uh, all of us, uh, I think, well, obviously we all respect it. But um, everyone out there should begin to use this medium as much as possible. So I jumped around a little bit there, but I hope that answers your question. No, that was all good stuff, Peter. You know, the funny thing is, though, Peter, I mean, you are kind of pushing a social movement. I mean, I went through this actually some time ago. uh, Brandy Hume from TVP Challenge was, you know, a little bit adversely affected by some of what you're talking about. And I just kind of pointed out to her, I said, do you think that Martin Luther King would stop marching if people made YouTube videos about him? You know, right. and and that struck her really hard. You know, of course, being you know African American herself, I imagine that was that was a little bit more meaningful to her. But still, you know, it's it, when you're trying to make changes for the better, it, it freaks people out. And that's it, the funny thing is, is the more resistance you're getting, in some ways, actually means that it, it means that you're what you need, what, what you're doing needed to be done. You know, otherwise, you wouldn't be getting so much flack. So um, well, the way. The way I'll say it, just to make one final point to anyone who's sure. listening that can identify with this, is that if you ask yourself, can you live with yourself knowing what you know, knowing what you've learned about what's possible, knowing about the corruption, can you live with yourself just to walk your narrow, self-interested path after all of that? So that's the question I pose to anyone listening that doesn't have, the say, the courage to step forward. See, I can't. I just can't live with myself in that regard. And I think deep down a lot of people feel the same way when they finally come to terms with things. You know, that's something actually that came from your first film that it still rings with me. I mean, and I've heard different crazy stuff about Jordan Maxwell, but there's this one line in your first in your first film where he says, you know, after you know the truth, you see lies everywhere. And um, and where, you know, it doesn't make me paranoid, but like I was actually, you know, I was going to bring that back to, to Roger and then also to Ben. But, you know, after studying Roger's stuff, for example, now I I analyze the news. And I can't look at it the same way. It's not something you can turn off. You know, after you're aware of this stuff, you can't just pretend it's not going on. And so I totally understand what you mean. And it's, 
it, it's very difficult sometimes. I, I literally have to just force myself to kind of detach and just go do something else that takes my time. Um, fortunately enough, I'm a writer and I write stories, and that you know I can lose myself in those for a while as kind of a you know like if you're swimming you know underwater, you come up for fresh air. Oh, sure. That's how I treat it anyway. But um, and I guess you know that's an interesting point though. Uh, I would actually wanted to bring back to Roger. You know, Roger, after you studied as much as you did about propaganda and in particular. Um, like, you know, I, for example, I remember recommending Cywar to you not long ago because I knew that that would be a film that you, that you would really like. Um, so uh, would you say that once you really got into the, the mix of that, that, like, you know, per- perceiving the world around you was never the same? Yeah, I would. Uh, by the way, just for your listeners, Cywar is a really excellent documentary. It's really well-researched and systematic and, and also beautiful. Speaking of art, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, spending my time, a lot of my time, in this place where I'm sort of, I've gone down the rabbit hole of some of the most sophisticated propaganda organs uh, in in the world and in in, in human history. Um, yeah, it's kind of a dark place, and it can, you know, um, it's sort of like some of my colleagues who study, I don't know, hate hate groups or something like that. You know, you wonder how you can spend so much time uh, wallowing in such, you know, human misery and hatred <laughs> um, and, you know, just moral depravity. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, um, you know, I've, I've given a lot of thought to that. You know, why did I choose this path? And in a certain sense, you know, it's um, it's a very difficult place to spend a lot of time. Yeah, I, I, I'm certainly, you know, very comfortable as, you know, on an academic salary and everything like that. But as far as you know, my my day to day mental health, um, um, uh, it's sort of um, I suppose it's helped me cultivate a sense of dark humor about the world. But I uh, I also see it uh, in terms of like mass public manipulation. I don't think there's really any better place to look, except for maybe advertising, um, to uh, really investigate you know what motivates people. What are the myths, myths that people live by, are compelled by, and uh, how do huge systems manufacture consent, manufacture myths that undergird consent even implicitly? And uh, I think you know even doing that, that's um, it's kind of an exploration of something profound. And I, I I'm going out on a limb here, I guess, a little bit. Um, it's even beautiful at times. Um, not that the end result is so beautiful. The end result is a very ugly thing. Uh, but the complexity of the systems that can move uh, citizen uh, authorization on a mass scale in the way that they do, uh, the whole systemic nature of it, um, the way that institutions interact with one another, in their sort of own institutional self-interest, uh, like individual organisms, um, how they couple up with one another um, to produce um, effects that uh, that serve those interests. I mean, uh, in, in certain ways, uh, I've come to think of it as sort of a very powerful, profound, and even um, even even beautiful process. And like I said, that is not. Um, Acknowledging that the end result is beautiful, it certainly is not. 
Um, but what else can I do but admire it for its power? <laughs> right. And that's, you know, and I guess it is difficult. I mean, I, I know, like as I was just saying, I can't even watch the news anymore after watching your film without looking for every single thing that you pointed out about how they manipulate people. It's, it's tough. Um, you know, and I guess, uh, so Ben, um, you know, is it, is it like that to you too? Is it something that kind of just changed your life and you, and you just can't turn it off? Does it, you know, is it something that just totally, I guess is, is once it's inside you, you know, inside your mind, it's difficult to look at the world the same. Well, um, for me, I guess, uh, if we're talking about, you know, like watching the news and watching advertising and things along those lines, um, I really have to make my, my stance perfectly clear. I see the same news stations and advertisements as, I mean, anybody else in the world. And I, I personally don't necessarily see deceit and hatred as much as I do see fear that drives people to do anything that they can to control their environment and control people to, in order to survive. But, um, again, to make my stance perfectly clear, I don't personally believe that this world is, is doomed. And I don't believe that we're driven by some form of human nature that uh, pushes us towards self-destruction. I think that's that's definitely an, um, a very plausible idea for people to arrive at because of the way that we see the world. But I think that really all that comes from a, a lack of imagination, a lack of create you know creative um, imagination in some way. I don't believe that we're on our last breath as a society, as some people do, um, you know, looking at the world as, as crippled. You know, I believe that humanity is young and learning how to grow. Uh, we're obviously, um, in the course of evolution, we're one of the, the we are the latest um, species to really, uh, one of the latest, I should say, to, you know, to grace this earth. So if you look at that, we're still very young in a sense, and you know, people grow old and die. Societies take a little bit longer, but humanity as a species takes a while. So I think that we're still, you know, we're right around puberty as a race. And the reason why I say that is because we're coming from an older world of complete confusion, trial and error, and learning from our own mistakes as we advance as a species. But now that we see that people are starting to culturally understand all around the world people are starting to culturally understand that our actions have consequences and we have to learn from those actions this is exactly what a child goes through in any culture uh when going from adolescence into childhood um anyone who who becomes an adult does so because he or she takes responsibility for the consequences of their actions it has nothing to do with age really and adults um are typified by those who learn from their mistakes and grow in health and they grow in wisdom. So I think that we're at a turning point in humanity. If you were to look at humanity as one growing organism, I see that it's right uh, around that transitional period, which always, I mean, if you look at puberty, that's, that's like, I mean, ask any mother, puberty to a mother is war, it's hell in some way, shape, or form. So the way that I look at it is the condition of humanity in our planet right now is exactly it's exactly the way it is. It's exactly the lesson we need to learn from in order to take responsibility for our past actions. So that's why I'm not really dedicated to, I'm not specifically dedicated to changing anything in the physical world, you know, because I believe that'll come. I'm interested in inspiring people to become a decent and happy individual within. I'm inspired, uh, I'm inspired by the art that 
I believe, allows people to see that they have the ability to choose the world that they live in. And really, every, every moment in our life is a choice on how we choose to look at the world and how we choose to look at the environment, how we choose to look at our friends, our family, our lovers, all of those people. Because I believe people will inevitably choose to change in the direction of love and compassion rather than just simply choosing to simply survive on this planet. And the world I want to live in is the one where people change, uh, change within towards a direction of love and compassion. So I'm choosing to serve that future, that future that I, that I see is very, very possible and actually very easy. It's just a matter of other people imagining and envisioning the same world. Uh, that's, I, I'm choosing to serve that future by helping create it. And so my first contribution to that future that I see, that I know is coming, is first and foremost love. But secondly, I've dedicated the Hangman Project to that future as well. And any, absolutely anything I can do, whatever I personally have to do in order to arrive at that future, that's exactly what I intend to do from this day forward. And I believe that the answer to the riddle of I mean, saving this planet, to the riddle of saving ourselves, is found when people truly understand art and the artistic ability within us and being able to envision, uh, envision the world. So, I mean... That's that's pretty much my rant on that. Okay. Um, well, the next question, actually, uh, once again, is for all three of you. And, um, and since I you know, left off with Ben, I'll start back up with, with Peter. Um, and, uh, Peter, basically, the, the question, um, and I think, actually, because you just went through this with Z3, you know, this one in particular will probably be a doozy for you, but uh, with so much relevant information to sift through in any given topic, you want to make a film about how do you just – you want to make a film about, I'm sorry – how do you go into deciding what to put in and what to leave out? And do you ever feel that your videos can just not cover enough to really get all the information across that you want to? Well, of course, with the subject of culture and the vast points that are made throughout the film series and everything that we do in the movement, obviously there's you know there's a dramatic amount of stuff that you just can't cover or spell out for people, and then you recognize that. Everyone's at a different level, you know. It's, some people get things if they have a more scientific background quickly, or a more social background quickly. And other people, if they're indoctrinated into a heavy, you know, narrow self-interest and all the staples of the current system, that they they blinker out or they simply don't understand after, immediately, or they, of course, they project like crazy. So, you know, the Zeitgeist Media Forward covers as much as I possibly could without people completely falling asleep from the accusations of Marxism to what it means to have the life ground to what human nature really consists of at a, at a tangible level that people can digest and realize that the society is not supporting people in any tangible way. So obviously, I mean, I could have made the film 10 hours long. I could have broken it up into a six-part series each two hours. You know, it's easily could have done that. Uh, and, I, and I am going to post, uh, hopefully very soon, the extended interviews. Um, that came from that. I've seen people like James Gilligan, uh, the researcher of violence, uh, just just profound, profound realizations uh, about how backwards our current treatment of other individuals are and our misunderstanding about what comprises that behavior. So, yeah, to answer your question simply, it's very frustrating because I ended up with this outrageous amount of footage and just going through it was uh, was was painful enough and then trying to break it down. But, uh, you know, so I'll... I have to maintain that for the next piece I do, whatever that may be. Yeah, that's really, you know, um, the the stuff that you did in, in Z3 in particular with all that, I know it's it's good that you answered that because that was a question that came up quite a bit was whether or not people were going to be, uh, you know, be able to see the rest of the interviews you had with those people. And 
They were very profound. Um, I had a pretty good talk with Dr. Gabra Mate, for example. You guys can check that out in my archives. Um, and uh, the I'm going to go ahead and um, bring that to you, Roger. The question, just to reiterate, is, um, you know, what's it like to have to figure out, you know, how much you're going to put in and how much you're going to take out, you know, and, you know, what kind of process do you go through with that, you know, is it as excruciating, or basically, isn't it kind of excruciating? I know it is for me in fiction because I have I write comic books and I have to condense everything into 24-page increments. It can be painful, and and that's just fiction. You've got a you've got all this important information you want to get in there. I mean, so what's that like for you? Well, you can't handle much in a documentary. I mean, you can at best get across one or two ideas with some artistic flair and with some you know pizzazz. So uh, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I don't know anybody that's ever made any kind of documentary film or any any kind of film at all that doesn't end up with about ten times the amount of footage that they have, uh, you know, that ends up on the cutting room floor than, than that ends up in the actual film um, or more. I mean, the ratio is often pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty uh, disparaging sometimes where you've done all kinds of work and and uh, a lot of it just does not end up in the film because you have to be as economic as possible. Um, so um, it, it's very difficult. I mean, uh, really, if you want to get any substantial ideas across uh, in any sustained way, I mean, it has to happen in a book, as far as I'm concerned, um, uh, unless you're unless you're Ken Burns or something like that, and people are willing to come back week after week and go through 12 hours of uh, documentary. Um, material on the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever you have in um, in store for them. Right. Well, um, Ben, same question. Um, I mean, you made two films too. Um, was there ever? I mean, would you? Have, I mean, what was it like for you to, have to figure out? Man, do I want to cut this part out, or you know, should I put this back in? You know, I mean, what was that experience like for you? Um. Well, actually, you're talking to the wrong person because I'm I'm the guy who I put every thought that goes through my head into the documentary and I just hope that it has flow and, and I hope that people understand it. So I really, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't put too much time and thought into, you know, organizing it in the best possible way or putting this here or, you know, making this lineup with that. I really just, I, I throw everything in there. I put my heart and soul into the attitude and the energy of it rather than, um, you know, rather than all the specifics. And the one thing I could say is that that's that's what I'll say about my past two films. About the films in the future, I'm definitely going to put a lot more time and care and, uh, you know, TLC into it, specifically because I believe that when people perceive a documentary, whether it's something that's, you know, purely intellectual or whether it's purely art or whether it's a mixture of the two, people perceive everything that, that shows up on the screen. They They perceive every single sound. They perceive every word. And it affects them in some way, shape, or form, and that that should be clearly evident when you when you look at uh, Hollywood and why they put so much painstaking effort into color correction and um, and sound effects and uh, soundtracks and things like that. Every little thing influences the viewer, and so it's really my task to try and create a documentary where absolutely everything is saying the same thing and it's giving the same inspiring message rather than becoming too drab, becoming too dark, becoming too serious, becoming too this or too that. I try and just put a balance of myself in the film. So it's it's really a matter of 
I believe that absolutely anything could be could be put across through uh, you know through a documentary. I believe that if if you can imagine it, you can put it across in some way, shape, or form. Now, obviously, live events help you know because it's it's more of an environment. But I mean, I believe that if if you can use your imagination, you could get across any point you want to on a documentary, and that's what I intend to do. Um, dedicated again to to really just inspiring people. So. I've really found no problem with um in the past that uh, you know there's plenty of information I put in my first two documentaries that I probably wouldn't choose to put in it now but I really don't care to take it any uh, out any of it I mean I I get emails every single day of people pointing out flaws in my films and all I can really do is just say thank you I mean that's that's you know it's great I'm glad you were paying attention I'll do better next time you know that's pretty much all I could do but as far as wishing that I took pieces and parts out i don't it really doesn't matter because you know a- anybody who involves themselves in the hangman project or watches my films i would assume that people who are open and people who are compassionate and willing to uh, have an open mind they're going to understand that i'm just a human being trying to do my best in this world you know that's true it's very true i get that um now my next question uh um, is I guess I'm going to go ahead and once again I'm going to start with Peter. Uh, now, what advice would you give to enterprising like you know young filmmakers? Uh, you know maybe lessons that you've learned that you know you wish that you had known when things started. Uh, you know anything that you you know any tips that you would give them you know to people who are going to do this. I guess it would be to figure out what your actual goal is. Um, if your goal is to try to make communication that's diverse and can work on multiple levels and essentially appeal to as many people as possible, you certainly have to think about that differently than, say, a very personal uh, communication, which is simply what you want to see at all times. Generally speaking, I go for the latter. I, I think uh, uh, you you, know, you kind of go with what, what makes sense to you, and then you hope that it resonates with others. But in some contexts, as I've matured, I've realized, you know, you kind of have to strategize around the nature of the people you're talking to, and that's what I did in moving forward when I painfully spelled out what a resource-based economy was and, and tippy-toed through it in Part 3, when I could easily have summarized that section very easily uh, to those that were semi-aware of such ideas, probably in a fraction of the time. So it's a combination of the two the two elements. That's what I would suggest people consider, is to be honest with yourself, but of course, be aware that it is a communication it has to exist uh, if you wanted to relate to as many people as possible and have them identify with it. You have to have identifiers and placeholders and signposts put within it that someone can grab onto and not just feel alien- alienated through the whole thing, which the first film uh, is exactly the opposite of that. The first film is a, simply a personal expression. Addendum was a combination of the two. And then moving forward, I very consciously thought about the very nature of documentary filmmaking and what most people expect in a semi-formulaic way in the hope that uh, it will reach as many people as possible. So there's that balance between personal interest and then social acceptability based on the indoctrination of the culture you're presenting it to. All right. Um, Roger, same question. Any uh, advice to new enterprising Internet filmmakers? Well, there's so many tools available to almost everybody these days that, you know, and documentary or, you know, film or whatever you want to call it, Internet video, is is just one of them. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I know that there are very good documentary filmmakers out there that identify themselves as such and really take the, take the medium to, um, 
you know, new places uh, and do really interesting things with it. But I, at the same time, I'm a little bit um, skeptical of this sort of what now seems to me kind of an antiquated designation of being a filmmaker um, when, you know, everyone is potentially a filmmaker and not even potentially a filmmaker. Every Almost everyone is. Everyone's got a YouTube account or whatever. Um, so, you know, um, thinking about, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, sort of media interaction you want to have with the world is probably the first step. Uh, but to, uh, you know, jump ahead and, and say, I want to be a documentary filmmaker or something like that, I think is sort of premature. I mean, um, there are all kinds of sort of artistic media available to everyone now. Um, you know, having an idea, asking yourself, um, what medium is uh, this idea most suitable to? And how should I pursue it? How should I pursue um, the expression of this thing um, is the first question. And, and sometimes the answer is video. Sometimes it is documentary film. Often, you know, it's, uh, it's some other medium. Um, but then, you know, I, I suppose people are interested in pursuing video as a medium um, should... Uh, uh, sort of uh, take a look around and, and uh, find people who are working in that medium that you really admire. Um, one of the people that I really think is a really special um, person working in this medium is, um, is uh, well, I mentioned Ken Burns earlier, <laughs> right. um, but uh, um, Errol Morris, you know, is just uh, really understands what video can do, you know, he understands rhythm, he understands um, negative space, and all the things that, you know, I I personally, you know, really don't work with um, as well as I should. Um, so, you know, there, find a model, you know, find somebody that really exemplifies what you want, how you want the medium to express your idea or your set of ideas, and pursue that. Um, but, you know, I'll go back to what I said before. Um, I, I, I think of yourself first as a person, then as a person who wants to express an idea, as an artist who has the potential of working in several media, and I think only last, um, you know, pigeonhole yourself in one of those media. <laughs> Right. Um, actually, uh, one really quick follow-up question, just for, since we're on you at the moment, and then we'll move back to Ben. Um, is there a trailer available for your new film yet? Uh, no, there isn't. Uh, it should be in the should be in the works right now. Um, I I've kind of given over the production of this film, including all the graphics, all the color correction, all the basic details to uh, the Media Education Foundation. Um, I didn't do that with my first film. It was all produced in my basement in really amateurish uh, fashion, but they took it, the second one, and took what I had and uh, really juiced it up, so it looks really great. Um, and I, I assume they're going to be making the trailer out of it, uh, too. Um, so, no, there isn't anything right uh, online that is accessible right now, and I wish uh, I, I did have some kind of link for people, but um, um, it'll be uh, out by the end of the month. Uh, you can go to mediaed.org, mediaed, as in Media Education Foundation, .org, and uh, they'll probably have something up within a couple of weeks. It's called Excellent. Returning Fire. Returning Fire. All right. Um, 
And now, Ben, um, any, uh, once again, the question, do you have any advice for any new enterprising filmmakers? Uh, you know, any lessons learned that you'd like to share? Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, um, everything that we do, everything we create, and I, I'm, I know I'm harping on this, but everything we create is art, and it should have some form of art form to it. So whatever, if somebody is aspiring to be a filmmaker or aspiring to be anything, really, um, the only advice that I can really give is what works for me. Uh, <clears throat> start at the basic. What What is the most perfect perfect expression of you as an individual? And how do you want to express that to others? What's the language you want to use to express the most perfect vision of you and the most perfect vision that you have for the future? How do you want to express that? So if it's through a documentary, um, really just find the best way that um, if you want to make an artistic documentary or if you want to make it strictly information and it doesn't matter how you piece it together, just know that when when the final product goes online or when the final product goes out for distribution, people are viewing you in a sense because if you're the creator, that, that artistic perspective comes directly from you and you're expressing yourself in some way. So when when the product is done before it you know before it hits the you know the shelves and before it hits online, just make sure that you are completely happy in the language that you're using to express whatever it is that you're expressing, and that could be anything. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're making a documentary on. It doesn't. It could be you know how you know how to bake brownies correctly. Yeah, you, know, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's really about what you want to express. So my only advice would be start from the basic. Don't just have an idea and, and hop right into it. And, you know, who, who knows, that could be cool because that's what I did with my first two documentaries. But, you know, having gone back to the basic and really just looking at what is if, uh, you know, somebody asked me early in life and it's always stuck with me, if there was only one thing that you could say to the world, only one thing, what would it be? And don't answer that. Just always keep it in mind, and in every action, in everything that you do, everything that you create in life, make sure you have that one thing you want to express to the world in mind. And if you do that, then there's not a single thing you'll ever feel guilty for. There's not a single thing that you'll ever feel that you're doing the wrong thing or you're taking the wrong step. If you know you're remaining true to exact, exactly what you want to express to the world, you'll never have those um, conflicting emotions or those conflicting thoughts. So um, that's pretty much the best advice I could give is just remain true to you in everything that you create. And if it's a documentary, just make sure it expresses you exactly how you want it to. All right. Excellent. Now, um, people are actually requesting this question, um, and I, I think I've asked all three of you this on individual shows, but um, I think it, it will be interesting now, especially since we talked a little bit about you know, uh, subjects similar to this, and maybe since you've had some introspection since then. But um, I'm going to go with uh, Peter um first and and the question is going to be uh what was the turning point in your life was there a precipice a specific moment or something that happened that caused you to to step out of the the mold and to look at the world in such a way that inspired you to become an internet film activist well no not particularly um most specifically because I never intended to actually uh, make any films at all, but um, it was sort of a path that was carved out for me. Uh, as far as cultural issues, as far as social <laughs> activism, which I think would be the same context, uh, you know, religion has been fascinating to me, and things that people believe um, that are basically indoctrination attributes, whether it's 
belief in your country, nationalism, whether, you know, nationalism, join the military, you know, the, and the belief in religious ideologies and the submission process. And, and there's all this mythological stuff around, which I've always been fascinated by. My cultural influence as I grew up was to always look at these things and try to be patient with them because it wasn't, it was extremely foreign to me because my education was very, very different. So religion, I always studied religion, and I think religion was the ultimate motivator for Zeitgeist, the movie. That was what I initially wanted to convey, and that's essentially how the film started, was this sort of exploration. And then it spread over into other forms of mythology. So I really couldn't, I mean, I could go on that, but I really couldn't give you a specific starting point. The events of September 11th, uh, on multiple levels, sort of was a wake-up call for, I think, everybody and you know you you shudder to think you know the possibilities of vast levels of corruption and what that actually means um even if the issue of what they call now belligerently the truthers and 911 truth even if none of that was true it's still an action that makes you reflect on a vast scale and uh you know i think that was an important thing to consider but for me i guess the issue of religion being so so untouchable because people are just terrified to to interfere with other one other people's identifications and everyone gets really defensive. I really just have always felt the need to break that out. And then as far as the 9/11 issue, I think I think Zeitgeist probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for 9/11 because it was the ultimate religious event and the entire world was entranced by this religious claim and then the society you see around you essentially the world changed in a way that it's just profound. And it really bothers me that most people don't really think about these sort of religious staples, if you will, these mythical points in history that set the tone for the future on uh, many different forms of policy and society. So it's a conglomerate of things. But early interest in religion coupled with the events of September 11th probably is what pushed me into where I am today. Well, excellent. Um, and uh, Roger, uh, same question. Um, what was there a moment that made you decide, you know what, there's something going on here in the world. You know what? What got you into propaganda, especially? It's it's such a a topic that people are just not aware of. I mean, was there a moment that you know that that made you decide to get into that, especially a, you know, like a precipice, basically that brought you out of the mold? Because I mean, you can't exactly talk about most of the stuff that any of the three of the people here on you know, on the call with me usually do without you know people kind of looking at you funny. So, what was the precipice for you? What what brought you kind of out of the haze, so to speak? Gosh, that's a very interesting question. Um, and you know, listening to Peter talk, um, you know, I have to. I mean, uh, developing a critical attitude is sort of a long-term process, and it's in a certain sense kind of masochistic in a way, uh, because you're sort of forcing yourself or putting yourself into a position where you're asking more questions and generally accepting um, some, you know, truths of existence that aren't. Uh, that aren't too, they're difficult to swallow uh, sometimes, like that, you know, propaganda exists on a mass scale and on an everyday scale, even in the form, as I mentioned before, um, on a mass scale in advertising, public relations, and other things. I mean, that's, uh, in, in a certain sense, ignorance is bliss, and stepping out of that and uh, really taking a good look at some of these systemic ways that, public opinion is formed and shaped on a massive scale. Um, you know, it, um, it is uh, intriguing, and uh, it drew me in 
Um, but uh, at the same time, it's sort of painful. You know, you don't want to think about human nature as being so manipulable. You don't want to think about, um, you do want to think about people as having strong sense of human agency or choosing, you know, what's in their best interests. Um, but often that is not the case. Um, so, um, you know, as far as like a moment, um, you know, one of the moments, uh, I was listening to Peter talk, is uh, clearly sort of the questioning of uh, religious doctrines. I and mean, it's the easiest place to start um, because that is where a lot of our um, mythic understanding of the world really comes to a point. Um, but it's also some of the most delicate kind of mythic <coughs> understandings about the world that we have. You know, it's, um, it's where people start questioning their received wisdom, um, usually, and then they move on to other things. Um, and, of course, religion is all tied up in um, political understanding and whatnot, and you can move out from there. Um, so it's, it, for me, it was a series of steps. Clearly, uh, you know, from my generation, um, and even you know the generation slightly younger, uh, 9/11 was um, a watershed moment where, um, like I think Peter said it well, um, where you're forced to take a very large perspective and ask questions about you know what's going on the entire geopolitical scene that would make this happen. But also you know it was a moment where you know I was thinking to myself and just meditating on this endlessly. Um, you know, those planes flew, flew into the buildings, but really, you know, the big bomb, the big fireball, and the big building that collapsed uh, was on the television screen, even more than in the streets of New York City. It was, uh, you know, it was a huge information bomb that um, permeated mass consciousness on such a scale that it sort of forced me to consider um, the role of media and huge propaganda uh, organs and how they functioned. Um, and then um, post 9-11, um, I sort of ran into uh, a group of uh, people who were, you know, um, sort of latent activists who were galvanized by the events of September 11th and also the, the mad grab for power that the administration embarked on after that incident. And uh, the build-up to the first or to the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq, and uh, sort of had a very pronounced um, couple of years of consciousness raising. Um, where I had been familiar with many of the ways the U.S. had exerted power in the hemisphere and around the world, you know, post World War II, uh, but really got an education after 9-11, um, and so, you know, that was my sort of big leap into what I call the rabbit hole, <laughs> and uh, and it just keeps going and going and going, and I, I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, it is. That's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, especially when you're talking to Jacques Fresco about this stuff, it's like you'll ask him a question, and he's been around for 94 years, and it's like he throws a boomerang out and hits about 30 different things before he gets around to answering your question. And then you realize, wait a minute, if he, if, if he hadn't gone off on all those things I thought were tangents, I would have asked every one of those questions. It's just, it's when, once you really get into this, it's, it's such a vast thing. And it, it is kind of hard to give short and quick answers about it, that's for sure. Um, 
Well, uh, Ben, um, I, I know I've asked you this question before, and, and you actually had a kind of an interesting story about it. Um, but it had to do with uh, you know, just like what was your awakening moment, your precipice that brought you, it, you know, out of just being a regular kid into being a, an activist and you know somebody who was conscious of the problems in the world. Well, um, I can I can really <clears throat> start from the beginning. Um, every moment of my life is really what makes me who I am today. Um, as far as turning points, um, pivotal moments in my <clears throat> in my life that have kind of brought me the ones that I remember at least that brought me <clears throat> on a rocket ship towards where I am today. The ones that really really pushed me in this direction. Um, as first and foremost, the time frame in this world that I was born into. I think this is a really, really interesting time to be living in, and I'm very appreciative of living in this time because uh, I think um, I'm learning quite a bit about myself very rapidly because of things like 9-11, because of things like, um, uh, well, pretty much I, I can't even uh, narrow it down. Everything that happens in my life, everything that I perceive on the news, through entertainment, uh, with my relationships with people, they're very pivotal, pivotal in me kind of moving towards um, <clears throat> towards what I believe is the direction I want to take with my life. So the time frame in this world that I was born into, I'm very appreciative of, and that's, I, I guess I could say, the first pivotal moment that I remember that brings me to this point. Uh, the, I mean, one of, the, one of the next ones was when I discovered um, how inspiring my brother is as an artist. Uh, he helps me with the films, and he's just um, literally the most inspiring person in my life. Uh, thirdly, reading the uh, Tao Te Ching, I re read that at, I think, 11 or 12, and again, my brother was the one who in introduced me to that, and not adopting any philosophies from it or anything, but just taking, you know, an open stance and, and you know, having an open mind towards it, um, that was another thing that um, kind of pushed me towards where I am today. And um, I could say that 9-11 really wasn't a pivotal moment in my life. Um, it, it definitely stood out because I understood the cultural relevance of it, but it wasn't a pivotal moment in my life um, because I could say um, that it didn't really affect me in the same way that I saw it affecting people around me. So I was really confused as to why I didn't see it as the same thing that everyone. I, I knew it was a huge event. I knew, um, the, you know, the tragedy that it was. I knew that, um, obviously, 2,996 people lost their lives uh, for a purpose that many people may never truly understand because, you know, the, you know they, they, weren't under, they weren't there. They weren't in the circumstances that those people were in. So it's kind of hard to, to put yourself in that. So I can't really say that that was a pivotal moment in my life, but one thing I can say is recently is that the Zeitgeist film, the first one, inspired me to create art for a cultural purpose. So I guess I should say, I mean, thank you very much, Peter, um, from not really just from a standpoint of, of the information, really more from a, a standpoint of the nature of you used art to inspire change within people, which I think is absolutely beautiful and brilliant. And that's what I support. That's uh, exactly what I support through the Hangman Project is people wanting to inspire change within people towards good, towards a, you know, a healthy future. And so I, I really should say thank you to that, Peter, because that's really kind of what pushed me into what I'm doing today. Oh, well, I'm happy to hear that, and I completely agree. Uh, art, is, uh, art is where intellect and aesthetic comes in. That's why at the opening of Zeitgeist Moving Forward, I have the quote regarding the role of art in and of itself. And I 
couldn't agree more. It's very, very profound uh, to create that medium and use it, uh, hopefully for positive things, because it is a form of manipulation. But if it's done with earnest and, and honest intent, uh, it's an incredibly powerful way to get people to understand things much more quickly than just opening up a book, you know, and and seeing things without feeling it. They have to feel it. They have to experience it, which is why I have all that stuff in, you know, in zeitgeist that's heavily aesthetic before you even get to the data. So, yeah. Now, um, actually, it's interesting that you brought that up, Ben, that you know you had a movie that inspired you, and I was just going to ask each of the filmmakers individually, if you had to pick another documentary, um, what would you say is your favorite? And I'm going to start with you, Peter, like one that's done by somebody else that really, you know, that is just like, what's your favorite documentary? What's my favorite documentary? Um, that's tricky. Um, you can shoot off three <laughs> if you don't want to narrow one down. <laughs> Well, I, frankly, as, as cliche as it might sound to a lot of people, the best documentary that covered controversial material that I saw years ago, which I was the first of its kind, long before this sort of entourage of of Internet documentaries, was uh, JFK by Oliver Stone. And just what he went through to make that and the turmoil that emerged and watching what had, had unfolded and the courage he had as such a prominent director to do that in the way that he did uh, that, you know, that's probably kind of old hat now, but that was, uh, I was impressed by that. And, and not to mention you follow up on the details that he goes through, it's very, very viable. So that was, a, I'd say, in a lot of ways, documentary-wise, as far as historically speaking, uh, that, that was influential on, on my understanding of the medium. But I, uh, it, I really couldn't tell you, frankly. There's so many documentaries I've seen recently. I, one of the most recent ones that I really appreciated uh, which is sort of a little more accessible to the public, was um, The Most Dangerous Man Alive, I believe it's called, which is the Ellsberg story, and uh, what he talks about his experience uh, in the Vietnam War. I've been fascinated with war uh, for a very long time, so war documentaries have always been always been important to me. So I'd say as a genre, those that seek truth through war documentaries to really bring that horrible act of, of immaturity to the surface and get people to reflect on it, uh, I really have a great appreciation for that. Um, so, you know, I, again, and Century of Self actually is actually a great documentary series, too. You've brought that one up a number of times. I'm sure if I sat down with it longer, I could think of <laughs> another arrangement. But, um, you know, so that's why I appreciate what Roger's doing, what everyone's doing, especially in the war context. Uh, one thing I might do in the future, as an aside, is in fact an, an anti-war film of a very broad global scale, uh, where instead of focusing on war as in, in a country context, which is mainly done today when they review the Iraq War, things as such, put it into a completely global context so everyone can kind of see what all the countries are doing with their manipulation, with the treatment of their soldiers. But uh, I don't want to deviate on that. But uh, various war documentaries have been very, very influential on me. And the start of my interest in documentary filmmaking was really JFK, which isn't exactly a documentary because it's gestural, but I, I really think it, uh, it sort of set the stage for what a lot of people ended up doing and their, their, their challenging of the system and what they've been told, if you will. All right. Um, Roger, what's your favorite documentary? Or <laughs> three, if you can't pick one specific one. <laughs> Gosh, that's a very difficult question. I'm kind of a connoisseur of the genre, and uh, there have been so many good ones lately. Um, you know, storytelling, consciousness raising, you know, I, you know, one one did immediately come to mind uh, that has really uh, affected me and stayed with me, you know, throughout you know, the past 
uh, now it's been six years or something like that. Um, but Errol Morris did one uh, a while back called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, uh, which was extremely poetic. Um, juxtapositioning of a lion tamer, a guy that studied colonies of naked mole rats, and a guy that um, took care of a topiary garden. Um, and it was a really beautiful meditation into the nature of um, artistic creation uh, and how that sort of implies also the artistic creation of the state and the individual, um, sort of the, the, I guess the theme was discipline, disciplining of the body, disciplining of the state, disciplining of living systems, um, you know, <laughs> lion tamers, colonies of naked mole rats and topiary. Um, uh, yeah, I was just, I, I'm, I'm still stunned by it and uh, quite beautiful. Um you know, I, I could probably name off a, a number of more documentaries that have uh, really worked for me. Um, in, in a certain sense, naming uh, the best one uh, or the best three is sort of an apples and oranges game. Um, but, you know, I was also uh, quite uh, moved singularly by um, one that came out about five years ago. As, maybe it was four years ago. Um, called Winged Migration. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, they, you know, followed flocks of birds with gliders and whatnot, um, but really very, don't like this word too much, spiritual um, reversal of uh, the entire aesthetic of what birds are, you know, flying alongside them um, and understanding them as in flight and not just flying by. <laughs> um, it was uh, quite lovely and sort of explored the whole nature of um, uh, living systems, uh, the planet, invisible magnetic systems, or however navigation happens. Um, so, you know, those are, even though it's far and away different from anything that I've ever engaged in, um, as far as like maximizing the aesthetic value of the documentary form, those two are at the top of my list. You know, when you talk about war documentaries, I still have to say, I mean, my, probably my one documentary that really hits me hard, probably more than any other, was uh, No End in Sight. Uh, just takes the Iraq War issue and really blows it away. Um, to anybody who hasn't seen that, I mean, he he got interviews with people that were directly involved with all of it, and including like uh, you know, Colin Powell's former aide, and you know, they got they painted a picture that it makes it so hard to think that they didn't do that on purpose because you couldn't possibly be that incompetent. <laughs> just some of the mistakes that were made in Iraq were so terrible. But um, in any case, uh, Ben, um, what's your favorite documentary? Well, it's actually really difficult to uh, to say because I honestly don't watch too many documentaries. <clears throat> but the one thing I... Um, I would say probably my favorite one of all time really is just one that brings me back a little bit, and that's Funky Monks, which is about the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the studio. Um, I just think it's beautiful to see how they created that album and how much you know, time, effort, um, blood, sweat, and tears in their soul that they actually put into, um, put into that project, into that, um, that album of theirs. Um, there's another one that's called One Life at a Time by... Uh, 
I don't know if it's by Krishna Das, but it's, it's about Krishna Das. And, um, you know, I, I could take it or, or leave it when it comes to, um, you know, the religious connotation to that film. But, the, I mean, I don't see anything along those lines when I see that film. I just see an individual that uses his music to inspire inspire other people. And it, it actually shows him uh, and, and some of the people he's affiliated with talking about him. And uh, and then it shows um, a kirtan that he did, which is just a, a, a Vedic or a Hindu devotional um, uh, kind of ceremony through song of just inspiring people. And it was it was amazing to see people in a temple um, completely having, like, the best time of their lives, in a sense, and it had nothing to do with, you know, to me, I didn't, I didn't capture any, you know, false belief of, you know, anything metaphysical or supernatural. I just saw that people chose to have the best time of their life, and it was inspired by this music that was playing, and I thought that was beautiful. Um, but again, I don't really watch too many documentaries. I'm more uh, interested in I guess, I mean, video is involved with it, but somebody like Trent Reznor is probably one of my favorite artists of all time because he just recently, I mean, you might know Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. Um, he created an alternative art, um, I'm sorry, alternative reality art project to where people were inspired to get involved with things that are going on in this world because he created uh, several different websites and uh, you know, dropped thumb flash, uh, you know, flash drives in bathrooms all across Europe and you know, all over the world, really, that had um, links that you could go to, and nobody knew who it was affiliated with. They just found a flash drive, and then they used that link to log on to the internet, and they found uh, certain websites that had these mock-up uh, news broadcasts from the future. And so, uh, I mean, at that point, the audience was kind of confused as to what was actually going on because they didn't know Trent Reznor was involved. And then it all turned into this one huge project that involved his his band, um, all of his music, and this alternative reality that he created, which was about people from the future um, sending news broadcasts or sending messages back to this time to warn us about the direction we're heading in. And I just I found that to be probably the most beautiful exploration of how to inspire people to really become involved in what's going on in the world and to inspire people to to want to change towards um, you know towards a healthier direction for the planet and for themselves. So that's kind of what I'm inspired by. Trent Reznor, I could say from Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails is probably one of my favorite artists, just specifically because of what he did there with that alternative reality project. And then on top of that, I love his music, but um, and that's kind of what inspires me. Those are the types of things that really inspire me. I'd be interested to see at some point, uh, unless you've already seen it, Ben, have you ever watched Heavy Metal in Baghdad? I actually haven't. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have to fix that. I'll be sure that you get it. But that's okay. a, a film that's about music and is also about the Iraq War. And the funny thing is is that uh, the way it's presented, Ian, is that you're, you're basically seeing these Iraqi kids who make a heavy metal band um, in Iraq and uh, the way their world gets changed, and they all speak really good English, and it's kind of done in this way that's similar to a rockumentary, but then it also is a war documentary at the same time, and it's really profound because 
I can't think of another film that has ever really made me relate to Iraqis the way this film did, because they all spoke really good English and listened to the same music I did, and it made you really go, you know, these are real people over there. You know, you don't think about that, because they, you know, their language, like, when you when you listen to Arabic, um, especially when you're listening to it on the news, they always play, you know, ups, you know, basically, you know, recordings of really upset Arabs, and their language sounds a little strange to Westerners. But, you know, these guys all spoke really good English, and, you know, they were all people that I could just imagine hanging out at my house playing Xbox with me, yet they're living in this destroyed world. And, like, one of them was wearing one of these old Megadeth T-shirts called, you know, For Peace Cells, and it's got destroyed buildings behind it, you know. And I just, it it was really ironic, you know, and somebody asked one of the guys in the band what got you into heavy metal, and he kind of looked around the wrecked world that he lived in. He's like, man, I live heavy metal. This <laughs> My my life is a Metallica song, you know. Um, but yeah, just a, definitely a recommendation for you and for the audience, for, for anybody who's interested in you know in in looking at a documentary that also kind of really touches the world. And and to those of you who were not aware, um, that band across Sakata has actually managed to get to the United States and put out uh, an EP that's very good. Uh, the song's called Garden of Stones. Is like the ones that you'll hear first anyway. And uh, the guys from Testament helped them put that together. So. Um, now, I guess uh, the next question I want to ask has to do with uh, future projects, even if it's not film. Um, Peter, uh, what are you working on next, uh, um, hopefully after taking a rest? <laughs> well, the Zeitgeist Media Festival <clears throat> is uh, a big deal that I've talked about a few times. I don't know if uh, it's not directly related to this conversation, but that's my next project. It's loosely related because video attributes could come into play because <clears throat> we have a lot of, you know, as, as Roger pointed out, everyone's a filmmaker now, and it's uh, unique to see uh, what people are willing to do and put out there on their own. And the Zeitgeist Media Project, uh, which we have going on at thezeitgeistmediaproject.com, is sort of a hub, a preliminary hub. We're not quite organized, but there's tons and tons of media that people have created. So the Zeitgeist Media Festival, which I hope to make a global event day, maybe start this later this summer, is essentially an arts festival that brings in artists that are socially conscious, obviously somewhat gauged around what the Zeitgeist movement represents as far as uh, a general change of awareness, uh, symbiotic understandings, of course, understanding the state of affairs in the world, understanding what we can do, ideally understanding a resource-based economy, but it doesn't have to extend that far. So it's a little bit more open-ended. So the Zeitgeist Media Project, the Zeitgeist Media Festival, is on par, and I've been looking into that. We get people like Natasha Atlas and and Lily Hayden and a bunch of other people that I know that could come and perform, and then a lot of visual artists around, and of course uh, we could do a film uh, day as well. If it could be a multi-day kind of festival event. Anyway, so that's kind of there on the back burner that I'm thinking about. Of course, we have Zeitgeist Day coming up, but I don't want to go into that because it's not really related to film. Uh, the next film, I think I mentioned in an interview that Z4 would be a live-action work that would basically be an art noir type of thing where people are living in a new society after this transition period we talk about where we get away from uh, the growth economy and we end up in a steady-state economy, uh, ideally a resource-based economy, and what it would feel like uh, in sort of the early stages of living in this new society while there's lots of reflection back on the old society. Now, the Venus Project, which I spoke with recently, they're actually on par to beginning work on their film, believe it or not, at least in some fundamental level. So I might not do that one first. I might do a film in between Zeitgeist 3 and Zeitgeist 4, which is, again, back to the war film that I mentioned, um, which essentially explores war as a 
global issue instead of you know using borders and administrations let's think about the commonalities of the patterns of war from you know from false flag terror attacks or at least uh, instigations of issues that relate to how propaganda is created to get whatever country into a war i mean there's a huge history that everyone has completely forgotten <laughs> about the gross manipulation the treatment of soldiers the early war methods where soldiers blatantly just walk towards each other and kill each other. I mean, who came up with that? And what is the real purpose of that? So there's a whole dark underbelly of the way, you know, war has evolved and where it might go, too. I want to explore the advanced technologies of warfare that eventually through time you might have war where there's no people. I mean, there's, there's already tons of people that sit around in little video game consoles and are literally flying planes, but uh, that's just the onset of really this te technological revolution that's come forward uh, there's been a few films that have been made on that, but uh, that's a subset of what I want to talk about, just the entire issue. And the goal, of course, being to get the public to understand that this is an institution that serves very few people. Um, it manipulates people on the highest levels from the, their deepest associations of their family and their nationalism and their religion. And it's, it is simply something that we cannot respect anymore. We can't hide behind people in their little their little badges and certificates and medals as though there's some honor to these slaughterers and mass murderers. I hate to put it that way, but uh, it's, it's time that people across the world finally understand what this institution actually is and the self-serving benefits it has for both the commercial establishment and the government establishment, just, just both from geopolitical alignment to uh, blatant corporate banking interests that uh, use it for various purposes. And luckily, there's a lot of old books that have resurfaced, like Arms and the Men, and early, early, very, very controversial works that came out around the Great Depression against war, or after World War II and World War I, that I've slowly been getting my hands on. It just blows your mind when you begin to realize how aware people were of the scam of war, even back then. But it's been continually suppressed, uh, not to mention the abuse of the poor, which the, the poor exist as an institution to supply the cannon fodder for the military. And it's very, very blatant when you look at it. It's very, very blatant, the need for the socioeconomic system. Whether it's deliberate or not, or a byproduct, it doesn't change the fact. So all of that stuff I want to compile slowly and, and create what I would hope to be the most effective anti-war film uh, ever put out, that it just covers as much as possible. I might even make a series out of it. I'm that serious about it. Uh, because if we can get that under the belt of the most of the world's population and get them to stop submitting to that game, um, We'll have a much larger chance of loosening the divisions between cultures and uh, try to get a global world together that really can share its resources and inch into a resource-based economy without all the fear that we currently sit by and the, you know, everything that I really don't need to bring up because I'm sure it's concurrent in both the filmmakers' films that, uh, or I know they are, that are sitting here right now. So, so I don't know. That's uh, that's on the agenda. I'm not sure which will come first, Z4 or that film. That one will not be a Zeitgeist film per se. I don't think I'll use the Zeitgeist prefix, if you will. Uh, it will become it'll be something different. Um, then I'll continue with Zeitgeist, uh, depending on what the Venus Project does. I don't want to be redundant. If they're going to do a, a live action film on their own, then I might change uh, the tone of what I'm going to do for Z4, which is very similar to their original concept. But you know, very different actually as well. But uh, right. anyway, we'll see what happens. Now, um, actually, it's interesting you brought all that up. Maybe you could get Professor Stahl and interview him for your movie. It sounds like absolutely. he might be a good source. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. My goal actually is to set up. Uh, well, let me just say one thing. My goal is to set up some agents 
unfortunately, I you know as as you know who I am, anyone can search myself and see the bashing and see whatever I've done. So it's very difficult for me to get interviews with anybody anymore. <laughs> so what I have to do is set up agents that will go out on my on my behalf and literally get into the Pentagon. I intend to go straight to the highest points I can uh, to get people on camera that would never ever go on camera in such a circumstance and present them with very factual data and really make an expo out of it to really show what goes to the, the minds and thoughts and indoctrination of those that are in the war cabinet that, have, that can perpetuate these issues. Because you can really, you, the point to be made is that the people that are in power are not evil. They're just, they really believe in what they're doing. And that is another side that I think needs to be pointed out to a lot of people out there that seem to have this division of people's moral distinctions, and they think that everyone is conscious of what they're doing. They're really not. They, the people that are in power in the United States that can engage war and that have the hawk mentality and that get excited uh, about any kind of conflict and want to jump in, um, and they, they really believe what they're doing is right. I really believe if you subscribe to alternative theories of, say, September 11th, those that could be behind such a thing really believe what they were doing is right. They really believe, okay, we'll sacrifice 3,000, 4,000 people. I mean, this is how Big New Brzezinski and all these guys think. It's one big game. And if we can get that humanization element there and to make people understand that they're treated like pawns in a game across the world, it's not just the United States, uh, hopefully uh, that awakening can occur. So. That's, you know, um, it, that's actually really interesting that you put it that way. It's something that came out when I was watching uh, Michael Moore's film, Capitalism, A Love Story, when he goes to talk to the CEO of Nike, and the guy honestly believes he's helping those people in the sweatshops. You know, he right, just has right. no idea that what he's doing is wrong. Now, another quick thing, um, yeah, you're going to be on TED Talks soon, aren't you? There's uh, two TED Talk. well, Portugal, there's been a conflict in Portugal on my end. And what I'm going to do as of now is a live webcast. I can't actually be there, but they've been, they've been very accommodating. So the, the current state now is that there's going to be a live webcast with my presentation because of, uh, of conflicts I won't go into. But there's another offer for a TED Talk in the States, a TEDx Talk. And then I've also submitted again for a TED, um, a TED Fellowship, which there's some people behind it that have been telling me that they've been in contact with some others directly at TED that do the curation. So... I'm hoping I can just go straight to uh, to the real TED forum. Uh, the TEDx events are great, but uh, my time has been so limited recently, and I'm really navigating things I can only do uh, that are really, really, really worthwhile in the sense that they get the most exposure. But yes, so there's TED, TED is on the horizon one way or another. All right, excellent, um, Roger. Uh, I mean, obviously, you just you have a new film coming out now. Uh, but what is, do you have any future projects, or even just future things that you're going to be doing as far as awareness? Maybe any kind of a tour or something for your film? Any ideas that you're going to be you know bringing up, or are you planning on working on another film? Well, it, it, it might make the rounds now that it's plugged into the MEF machine, uh, the Media Education Foundation machine. It'll probably um, be going to a few festivals or something like that. Um, so other than that film, which is you know, coming out presently, um, I was just, you know, as a Mexican restaurant with some friends tonight, I'm working uh, on a, a project with um, a friend, associate of mine, who's also a music, musician, um, where he takes Balinese, um, <laughs> Balinese orchestral samples and then sort of like uh, remixes them into interesting uh, Western inflected kinds of uh, music, musical pieces, and so I might be doing some music videos for these instrumental pieces of his. Um, <laughs> that's just a, a little curiosity, I suppose. 
Um, but um, you know, my my academic work is uh, going in the direction of exploring our relationship to um, technologies of vision, um, the mechanization of vision, and how the camera has become such an integral part of everyday existence. How cameras are miniaturizing and filling in the cracks of everyday life. Um, the nature of um, surveillance and its uh, power and control implications. Um, and then um, how uh, people are using cameras and instant distribution networks, uh, clouds of uh, connectivity to um, sort of um, influence, resist, fight back, or exert grassroots power uh, from directions other than the um, kinds of, uh, uh, well, the ways that we have seen and kind of conceived of surveillance working in the past um, as being sort of uh, more centralized or more, um, I guess, more interested in maintaining the status quo or normalizing human relationships and behaviors. So um, my sort of long-term book project right now is called Pluroptica, and it's uh, looking at the kinds of internal contradictions of our camera culture uh, political conflicts that the camera and instantaneous distribution of images have caused. So, you know, uh, flicker webcams, surveillance cameras, closed circuit, um, uh, and, uh, and distribution systems like YouTube and, um, you know, the um, sort of uh, um, Twitterizing of uh, the eye and visuality. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm very interested in the aesthetics of everyday use of the camera, how it has influenced the way we see the world, and um, the internal um, political struggles that access to cameras and uh, um, you know camera culture in general has engendered. I, I guess the easiest way to put this new project is that um, you know the camera has been kind of a politicized tool or become a politicized tool where there have been sort of lines drawn in everyday social capitalistic life of where the where you and I as regular citizens can and cannot bring a camera you know the sort of prohibitions are developing and uh, and also you know um, the camera has become not only prohibited in some places but um, uh, also it sort of it has been intensified as a tool uh, for surveillance and, and control through sort of official channels. I'm not sure if I'm expressing myself in the clearest form, um, but eventually, uh, you know, I think documentary being a visual medium and also the medium of the camera um, is going to be uh, the form through which um, a lot of these ideas should be explored. You know, the reason that I'm sort of, I guess like Peter, an incidental and an accidental documentarian is because I just happen to be interested in um, visual media. And the only way that you can really talk about visual media in a very compelling way is through other visual media. Um, I think it was David Byrne or um, Elvis Costello or something who said that writing about architect or writing about music is like dancing about architecture. This um, really 
no good way of approaching visual media in, in through written form or through any other kind of form except for visual media. It captures you know, the cadence and the complexity and also the, uh, the, emotional, um, the emotional interface that is the camera, that is uh, visual media. And we are a heavily uh, visual culture right now, deeply indebted uh, in terms of our sense of self, subjectivity to the camera as an instrument. So uh, that's the direction my work is heading. The things that, I mean, it, so you basically, I mean, you're pointing out, obviously, just that I think a lot of people are not aware of the fact that we're actually under surveillance quite a bit more than we really believe. I mean, is that kind of what I'm getting out of that, or? Sure. I mean, there are official forms of sur surveillance, but, you know, there are sort of unofficial uses of uh, the camera and surveillance that um, tend to challenge dominant forms of surveillance. Uh, there's a whole, for example, uh, culture that goes by the name of surveillance. You know, sur is view from a, you know, surveillance view from above, the French. Mm -hmm. Surveillance view from below has uh, been sort of a movement that has developed in, in the last few years. Um, Steve Mann uh, is a um, scientist at MIT who is probably best known for implanting a video camera in his head, um, just right on his eyeball, and uh, videotaping everything, in fact, turning the camera back on the system of surveillance that has become so prevalent in recent years, and really making a point of you know trying to understand the camera and its directionality as a political statement and as a sort of a political technology for man manufacturing and managing human behavior. Um, so um, that's just an example of one of the sort of conflicts that is inherent in our camera culture right now. Well, um, actually, I look forward to that. And uh, all right, Ben. Um, I mean, I know you got the Hangman project going on, obviously. Um, do you have any future films in the making or any other projects that are coming up? Oh, well, <clears throat> I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm full of ideas for the future, and uh, things are kind of uh, transitory right now. 2011 has been quite a, quite an odd year. A lot of things are definitely happening for the Hangman Project and for Talismanic Idols Productions, um, which is uh, the, the production from that my, my brother and I uh, launched. Um, but yeah, 2011 has, has been quite wild. I could really just say that the, the Hangman Project... Uh, to separate the two, to make it, you know, understanding <clears throat> what what both of them are. The Hangman Project is what I'm dedicating myself to. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's what I'm dedicating myself to more on, uh, on a cultural sense. And Talismanic Idols is my brother and my full production uh, project that is really dedicating itself to our own art and really just being individuals and uh, and also making it possible for other people's artistic visions um, to become possible by contributing to them opportunities and resources for them to create art the way that they see fit, you know, art for themselves and art for humanity without having to worry about the industry of art, um, you know, worrying about is this going to sell, is this something that we should put on, on the market, you know, this isn't the right way to advertise, this, that, and the other. That's the industry of art, which in my opinion is more of a science than an art. Um, but for the Hangman Project, I'm asking for help really from anyone and everyone who understands that change you know on this planet uh and change you know within individuals 
change only occurs within the individual instead of, you know, really waiting for change to be set up in the world for us to enjoy, change should come, should be initiated from within. So I'm helping the Hanged Man Project because, again, yes, I launched the Hangman Man Project, but it's not mine, really. It, it already belongs to anybody and everybody who signs up for the forums, for the mailing list. It belongs to everyone. Everybody has an equal say in it. So I, I, I'm not saying that I'm directing the Hangman Project. I'm really helping the Hangman Project work towards an international community of individuals who dedicate themselves to really only one thing, and that's that's the people. That's what the Hangman Project is dedicated to. to. It's really the people. I don't concern myself, and neither does the Hangman Project. Um, we don't really concern ourselves with ideologies or specific ideas or anything else, really, except for the best interest of the people. It doesn't matter how that's achieved. That's all I care about. If it has to be done through science, that's what I care about. If it has to be done through religion, that's what I care about. I really have no uh, emotional investment on how we arrive at that future, but that is the future that I wish to see, so that's what I'm dedicating myself towards. And if that sounds very vague to any of the listeners, I can really clarify this by saying that there are many organizations and people who are working towards enacting physical and political and economic and societal and environmental change. Uh, there's plenty of that out there. So what I'm trying to do, I'm simply trying to add a little bit of balance to that, you know, n not setting up something that's opposed to it, not trying to battle it, not trying to create any enemies. All I want to do is add my contribution um, to give a little bit of balance to that by encouraging people to remember that beneath of all of the politics, all the money, all the scandal, all the conspiracy, all, all the ecological and societal conditions that we're living in today, the most important facet to our lives as in our human existence is, in fact, human existence. That's the most important thing. And it, it, it should sound redundant that the most important thing to human life is human life because everything else, everything above and beyond human life is really transitory and can be changed at any moment. It's just a matter of how we use those technologies, those ideologies, those sciences, those uh, those ritual methods. It's how we use those in our lives. That's what I care about. You know, what kind of a relationship do people have with their food? What kind of relationship do people have with their families, their lovers? What's the relationship to the planet? That's what I'm concerned about. And that's why I work towards inspiring people to know themselves a bit better. Because in my opinion... Knowing yourself is the only way to initiate change in this world. And remember, I, you know, I believe that we are um, just as a species, you know, we're a species that is just now coming into adulthood and learning what consequences come from our actions. So when I look at the world, I see something beautiful. I don't see decay. I don't see, I don't see um, all the, you know, decadent and degrading uh, portions of the society, uh, society that I used to a few years ago, what I see is the perfect opportunity for us to become adults and to realize, okay, why is there uh, problems with lacking in resource? Why is there poverty? Why is there famine? Why, are there, why is there perpetual war? Why does it seem like this is just stamped into human nature and that's just the way things are? Well, to me, that's just us coming into our own and realizing that, okay, these are the decisions we made in the past. We made, a, we made the decision to um, group ourselves off and band into, you know, into individual uh, societies and cultures and things like that. And whenever we needed something, we would interface a little bit. Um, but we really, you know, we weren't banded together. 
And in many ways, that's, that's fine, that's great, but what I see is the fact that in the past, we made the decision to be where we are today. We are exactly in the position we are today as a species and as a planet because of our decisions in the past. So where we go from here is really nothing more than just the choice, and that choice has to be made within the individual. So I see that we are at the perfect point. What better point in history could we be alive today to change the planet and to really come into our own as individuals to understand ourselves a little bit more, to really understand how powerful we are as individuals. What better point in history could we be living in than a point where there is a chance that we may, be that we may destroy the planet and destroy ourselves? I think it's perfect timing for the Internet to be one of the biggest things in our lives right now because we're now seeing the consequence of all of our actions as, as a, a global species. We're seeing it in real time now. It's, uh, information is coming out faster and faster thanks to um, filmmakers such as Roger and Peter. Uh, you know, and I, I, I'm just glad to be doing my part because the more that we bring this to the forefront of what's going on in the world, as long as we're doing it in a manner that doesn't discourage us from thinking, oh, we're doomed, you know, there's nothing we can do from this point on, you know, we, we better just like stockpile some food and, and run off into the mountains with our shotguns and just wait all of this out. That's not the vision I have for the future. The vision I have for the future is inspiring people to envision a better future and find a way because I believe that the mind is unlimited. I believe that art is unlimited, and that's my personal belief. But I believe that if it's true that the mind is unlimited and that art is completely unlimited, then there has to be a way. There absolutely has to be a way for everyone on this planet to live peacefully with one another. I don't see that we have to go through war. I don't see that we have to go through a large upscale upheaval of society. I see that it's just a lack of imagination that keeps us from that reality. So if we were to be able to imagine it and bring it about and say, look how easy it is, that could inspire people towards a better future. So that's really what I'm dedicating the Hangman Project to, and all of my art from this point forward is dedicated to that very same cause. Well, um, okay. Thanks a lot for your answer there, Ben. Um, I'm actually I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, also just like whatever collaborations may come forward with the Hangman Project and the Zeitgeist Movement in the future. Um, so uh, that being said... Uh, we're actually coming down now to around the last 10 minutes. We had one more technical question, and uh, I guess people were kind of curious, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, by no means feel that, you know, your answer has to be the same as the guy before you, but, you know, uh, if but if it is, you don't have to come up with something different. But um, I'm going to start with you, Peter. Uh, they said, you know, how do you conceptualize, you know, these these movies, at least in your in your methodology? Do you set out a storyboard or just kind of make notes ahead of time to determine, you know, where you want to go, or is it more kind of a fly by the seat of your pants, you know, paste it, you know, cut and paste it together as you go kind of thing? Uh, no, it's extremely mechanical. I start with the texts and media that I review. Uh, for moving forward, consisted of probably initially about 40 or 60 texts, and you read them, and then you make notes, and you note elements that you like. Usually all, all my books are covered and stuff, so... Once I've highlighted what I thought was an important point or important section of a work, I by hand physically copy everything out into onto pages. Uh, that is sort of a cognitive thing. Computers are a little impersonal cognitively. At least in my development, writing is a faster way to get things into your brain to remember it so you can organize it. 
So that process of copying all that stuff onto pages, and then I categorize all my notes. I usually end up with 100 pages or so, and I categorize all my notes very systematically based on the subject matter. Then I end up with a matrix of subject matter and topic points. And then from there, ultimately, it becomes sort of an intuitive thing because there's only so much you can do. Um, so you end up with a huge number of categories, and you try to orient them logically, and then whatever content is associated with those categories end up in the, uh, the train of thought. And then the narration is written based on uh, referencing those that matrix, I guess you could say, that uh, I'm referencing. And then you do the narration, and then I do the visuals, and then I do the music, and usually there's some fine-tuning that has to occur uh, between the visuals and the music, so there's a certain open-ended kind of element there. But I work extremely methodically, so uh, there's not too much mystery to it. Naturally, there's always things that pop in. There's always uh, weird things that occur. Um, it, it, it takes on a life of its own, if you will, but that's the process itself to me. So uh, I have a very, very clear view of what I'm doing while I'm doing it, and Eventually, it does, again, it, it takes on a life of its own, but I've gotten better at making sure what I'm doing uh, stays in accord with my initial intentions, unless something just hits me and sideswipes swipe, side me in an artistic way, and then it goes in a completely different direction. But the entire, you know, the Zeitgeist like moving forward is a gigantic work, and it's if you were to look at my apartment, I'm still trying to go back through and organize uh, the notes that I have everywhere from that process of consolidating data and figuring out what to keep. Um, in fact, I'm probably going to post an entire point-by-point point reference since I have this information. Uh, granted, I'm going to make a PDF to support the film, and I still need to finish the addendum one, but uh, and just so everyone can see all the just the, the step-by-step train of thought of why it's there and the data that supports it, just like I did with the companion guide for Zeitgeist, the movie. So... Any uh, tips on? I mean, if you're not, if you don't want to give up your tips, you don't have to. But somebody asked if like, there's any uh, software you use that you would recommend. Well, yeah, I mean, the Mac has the proprietary kind of world, the best programmers for that kind of stuff. So I, I'm Mac-based when it comes to video editing. So you know, Moving Forward was made with with Logic, Logic Audio for composition. You know, it's got a great notation engine, and then the um, Final Cut Pro, and then After Effects. And then for compositing, 3D Studio Max, Nuke for uh, tracking, and uh, a few other kind of auxiliary programs that you could throw in. But it predominates Logic, Final Cut, and After Effects as the basic, the basic outline. Everything fold, folds in with that. Excellent. Work, um, workflow. Rod, Roger, same question initially was, you know, how did you kind of plan out, you know, uh, your films? And, uh, like, did you, like, did you use a storyboard, or do they kind of come to life as you go? Well, my style is sort of collage-based, I suppose, and you know it's the same thing whether I'm writing a book or putting together one of these films. Is that you know you end up with a pile of interesting stuff, and then you just start like making little bricks out of things, and then start laying the bricks. And so it um, it's sort of a granular process, but you know um, as as that process unfolds, um, there are all kinds of interesting juxtapositions and 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 uh relationships that sort of unfold before your eyes as as you're doing this and uh um you know i suppose as peter said it, it takes on a life of its own it's it's its own like symbolic universe um in a way if you if you have this pile of stuff that's rather sort of discreet and uh it contains its own um story just sort of like a chunk of wood or a stump contains the carving that the woodcarver, you know, discovers in it. 
Um, so I, I, I hope that, you know, I'm sort of humble enough in my process to, and open-minded enough to um, perceive that there is sort of an unfolding that um, is not necessarily of my making, but exists there in the material. Um, so that, that's kind of how I work. All right. Um, ben, same question. I'm reminding you that I've got about six minutes. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically just the, the process in which I create films, is that... Is yeah, that it's the, like, I mean, do you use a storyboard? Do you have, like, a pre-plan, <laughs> or does it kind of come together as you go? Um, well, in the interest of time, I'll just say it like this. Um, there's absolutely no method to the madness I use for the films. I, I mean... The first film was done one way. The second film was done a completely different way. And as as far as inspiration, it's just... Um, I typically... I, I start a film because I, I feel inspired to um, to begin, you know, voicing some of my experiences and some of my research. And it typically ends up in a completely different direction than I thought it would have. Um, with both films, it took over six months to create each one and since you know I, I work just with me and my brother um, a lot of the editing was done with me a lot of the rendering time was done with me I have a very simple operation I use Final Cut Pro Adobe After Effects uh, Photoshop when I need to um, again you know I'm a musician but you know but when it comes to recording music on my own I'm not the best producer I guess I just really um, when I feel a part needs something, I'll put it in there. Um, and usually I never do any, you know, deducting or um, or subtracting. If I put something in there, it should be in there for a reason, unless I really just feel it's out of place. But that's never really happened. So I just, I just start a project and see where it takes me, really. I mean, sometimes it starts with dialogue. Sometimes it starts with um, just a visual. Sometimes it starts with music, really. Actually, for this next um, documentary that I'm going to be doing, um, I'm doing one more about somebody up in in Canada uh, coming out soon, but the one that I do after that is actually mostly driven by the music. So it's going to be a definite departure from what I've done before, even though it gives the same, it has the same intent and it's going to have a lot of the same information, but really it's more driven by the the music and the visuals than it will be by the words because um again uh, it's more of an experiment for me to see uh you know how I can connect with people how I can use the language of art to really connect with people and I've done it with words so far so I'm looking at it kind of expanding my horizons and doing it um in different ways and that's really why you know I didn't realize till recently but that's exactly what I've been doing in the band um, we just recorded a full-length album that's going to be coming out um, this May, and um, it's almost the exact. Actually, it is the exact same um, expression that I put in my documentaries that's put into the the music. So, as far as like how I create it, I couldn't tell you because there's really no. You know, I, I took no classes. You can tell by watching the documentaries. I, you know, I've never t- taken any lessons. I really have no idea what I'm doing. I just know what I want it to come out to be, and that's usually what it does come out to be. What? Uh, what? I'm just curious. In the few, uh, what, what instrument do you play in your band? Well, I'm the singer in the band. Um, there, there's times I play guitar. Um, I pretty much play every single, in, uh, well, a lot of instruments. I can't say every instrument. Um, I play a lot of more more typical ones: bass, guitar, drums, piano, uh, trumpet, horribly harmonica very simply and 
you know, many, you know, many different things, but I also use uh, read. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. we're going to go ahead and cut you off at that, but yeah, okay. thank you everybody for coming on. Um, real quickly, uh, Roger, where do they find your stuff? What's what's your website? Well, the main website of my distributor is uh, mediaed.org, Media Education Foundation at mediaed.org. Okay. Ben? Hangedmanproject.com, H-A-N-G-E-D-M-A-N-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.com. Peter? Uh, the gateway is zeitgeistmovie.com. All right. Well, thank to thank all of you for coming on. Everybody's uh, thanking you once again in the chat. And um, I'm actually working on my own documentary called Troll about the internet trolling phenomenon. Um, not just about the kids and the internet, but also like you know, actual companies are getting involved in this, and some governments uh, to utilize that medium to affect propaganda. Um, you can check out my radio show, obviously, at vradio.org, v-radio.org, or v-radio.org. You can listen to more archives of shows like this one. And um, check out my must-see TV list that has a lot of the films, actually, we've already discussed in it uh, to watch for free on the Internet. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V Radio, and uh, thank the three of you for taking the time to be on. Thanks. No problem. Say good night, everybody. <laughs> good night, Neil. All right. I'll leave you guys with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.